So the season of Easter, of which this is the first week, reminds us that resurrection means the living presence of Jesus among and within his followers, and that this is a basic element of Christian spirituality, that in resurrection we have the inaugurating uh, among the church in the life of this group of people, a new life, uh, a new life marked by love. So this Easter season, we're going to be working with uh, the letter of 1 John. Uh, you likely know that John was known both as the apostle who Jesus loved and also the apostle of love. And so this letter or this little tract, whatever it might have been originally, uh, lets us in on his experience of the love of God and how John experiencing the love of God experienced the transformation of his own life and how John came to see love as the truest mark of fellowship with the resurrected Jesus. So we didn't read the first couple of uh, sentences in our reading, but they simply say, the life appeared. And then John goes on to see, as, say, as you can see in your text, that we now proclaim to you what we've seen and heard about this life that appeared to us, this life of God, this manifestation of God, this trueness of God that came to us in Jesus. We're now proclaiming to you or announcing to you what we saw of that, what we've heard of it. And then if you look at these next two words, they're uh, enormously important to what follows actually in the whole rest of the letter and as well as what we have read this morning. We're proclaiming what we've seen and heard so that... And so this gives us a clue to what John's trying to do here is to help people have fellowship with us and the us meaning the people for whom they saw the resurrection, John and the, the first followers of Jesus. So we want you to have the fellowship we have with him. Our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is an invitation to life. It's an invitation to a certain kind of life, to a life in Christ. And what John is saying is that this life is available to anybody who trusts in Jesus and wants to follow him. So the old, you know, English preacher Spurgeon commenting on this passage said that he saw that at the very bottom of fellowship, there is some sort of likeness. That when we, when we think about this word fellowship and what it means to have fellowship with the Father, to be fellowship, to have fellowship with Jesus, Spurgeon sees it as kind of a likeness of wishes and desires, a similarity of corresponding goals. He sees it as spirits being welded together in the same sort of intention to pursue the same purposes. He sees communion or fellowship with the Father as sharing the same object of God's love and how this then is facilitated by an ongoing conversation, which again is implied in the word fellowship. So what John is getting at here is that God has manifested himself in Jesus, and then John's just simply saying, we got to investigate this. We were able to observe Jesus and examine him up close and personable. Uh, one of the words in the text here is um, when it says that, that we got to see him, it means it, a gazing, a longing, carefully looking at something. And John wants us to know that this is still available to anybody who's interested, anybody who wants to can still take a gaze at Jesus. Anybody who feels that desire, who cares to, the same sort of a life is available to us. 
But unfortunately, what we deal with today in just sort of common society, I mean, setting apart any sort of formal philosophies, just in common society, what we deal with today is an increasing sense that there is a kind of a hard, fast distinction between facts and values, that there's this radical dichotomy there. And this is a sort of an ongoing source of conflict um, between typically, again, just putting it simply, between sort of science on the one hand and religion and ethics on the other. In its most, most basic sense, it just simply means, as you would suspect, that you know, facts are those things that are provable sort of by the scientific method and our access to them via our senses. And that values, utterly unlike facts, they can't be proven true or false by any sort of scientific method. And therefore, the kind of thing that John is saying here, it can't any longer sit in any sort of real knowledge. It's religious value. So it doesn't matter that John says we looked at these things carefully, touched him, we held him. I was in the room when Thomas freaked out and Jesus said, touch me. I heard Jesus talk after the resurrection. I saw him. We actually had conversation. And so I don't so much feel like I'm saying this to you or to us as much as I'm sort of saying it for us for the sake of your conversations in the world. And I just wish so much that you would carry this confidence around in your heart and mind. Nothing important about humanity has changed in the last 2,000 years. These people were every bit as smart as we are. Now, they wouldn't have known how to turn on or off an iPhone 10, but they could have learned. I mean, how would you feel if you said, over Easter we had dinner and my grandmother was there and I hugged her as she left, maybe knowing she was really sick or something, and so maybe you're writing a, well, I guess we don't write letters anymore, you're, you're sending a Facebook post to a friend saying, I, I, I may have just hugged my grandmother for the last time. Well, how would you feel if someone said to you, well, you don't actually have a grandmother. You don't love her. You can't know that. You can't know that you hugged her. You can't know your feelings. You can't tell somebody you did that. That's the position we put John in when we say religion just sits in the category of value, not knowledge. And here's the problem with that. We act unfailingly on what we suppose to be knowledge. And if you think of it like driving, you do it without even thinking. You just push your finger just slightly and to the right, and you're turning right. You do it subconsciously. But you are doing that on the basis of knowledge. And so again, I, I, I mean this in the sense of, I just know the big pressure, and we don't have time to talk about all the reasons that this pressure exists in our present social discourse, but it does. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an intentional marginalizing, uh, to borrow a famous phrase, of inconvenient truths. I mean, think about what, just think seriously for a second about what Dennis just read to us in the Gospels. Who doesn't see God's commands as burdensome? It's the whole reason he's rejected. He's kind of a pain in the rear. Why? Well, because he gets in the way of our desires, whether they're sexual or economic or you know rooted in consumerism or in political theory or whatever he gets in the way of our desires it's a, these commandments are very inconvenient truths yeah or our desires are just see what I mean that's the rub and so you know 
social scientists used to be able to talk about a center, like there was a center that felt like it held and there was certain parts of human knowledge and, and that some points in American life would have included things like ethics. And for about 20 or 25 years, sociologists of religion have been talking about the marginalization of the church, how we're increasingly pressed to the margins of society. Well, now the things that I'm reading and seeing is that you can't even use that language anymore because everything is so decentered, everything's so fragmented that there's not even a center anymore. So you, you can't use words like center and marginalization unless there's a center. But the, see, the throwing off of any sort of knowledge has meant that there's not even a center that we can agree to anymore. Now everybody's just living under the tyranny of their own ideas. Their own ideas ruling them like an iron hand because human beings can't live in any other sort of way. And John wants to say there, there actually is something here, that Christianity and following Jesus is not nothing. It's a something, there's a there there. That there actually isn't any form of Christianity that makes any sort of sense without particularity, without the knowledge that God like definitely revealed himself in Jesus. And to say that kind of thing today just, you know, feels intolerant or like we're being judgmental of other world religions or something. And I can just say for myself, I never intend that. I don't carry around in my heart hatred for people committed to other religions. I don't carry around in my heart hatred for other religions. But that doesn't stop me from saying I think there actually is a particularity in Jesus. That, you know, this wasn't made up. Now, you might say, well, you know, people over the centuries have used these sort of ideologies, whether it's Christianity or Marxism or whatever, they've used these sort of things as to bully other human beings. Okay. But does that mean your grandmother doesn't exist that you hugged? If someone were to say to you, you're a family of alcoholics, you're a family of drug addicts, okay. But that doesn't mean the grandmother you hugged doesn't exist. Maybe you come from a bullying family. Maybe you come from the mafia. I mean, I know you don't, but you know what I mean? So maybe you grew up in a family that literally was East Coast Mafia. And somebody could say, well, your, your family has been used for bullying. Yeah, well, of course. Okay, I'll stipulate it. But I still hugged my grandmother. I touched her. I saw her. I knew her. I interacted with her. And that fellowship that I knew with her, I'm making known to you. And I'm inviting you into it. That's all, that's all that John is saying. That which we knew to be true, the fellowship with the one true creator God who manifest himself to us in Jesus. We touched and handled and felt and gazed and observed and focused on and it created a fellowship in us and Jesus invited us into the fellowship that he knew with his father and I'm inviting you into that. And I just wanna to say to you again for the sake of your own conversations outside of this room with family and friends and work and schoolmates, that it's possible to talk about this stuff without bullying. It's possible to talk about this with no coercive intent. It's, it's possible to talk about this with simply the intent to invite. That, that which I know, that which I'm coming to, I'm coming to learn to know. As I, as I sat with this this week, I thought, man, you know, there are times, any, anybody who ever teaches or preaches, if they're honest, will tell you, there are times when you just sort of feel out of your depth, you know, like there's something going on here that I don't even know I can faithfully articulate. I'm giving it my best shot here. But even if I were just to try to talk about my own 43 years of trying to live into this fellowship, I didn't even, like, I can't prove to you that I feel like I do have a fellowship with God and that I'm a radically different person than I was from like 12 to 19. 
I was not a good person. You wouldn't have liked me at all. Like, I, I am. I'm a radically different person. I don't even know exactly how to pour that all into this really fundamental word of follower, excuse me, of fellowship. But there's something there. And I think it just kind of invites us to wonder, was John smart? Was he capable of articulating reality as he knew it? Or do we have to set him aside as working with something other than intelligence or knowledge that he was unable to represent this to us because, well, this is religion. You know, like, is his proclamation that he's trying to make here reliable? And again, he's just tapping into a pattern. And the pattern was, in the New Testament, that Jesus bore witness to the Father. This is why he said things like, I only do the things I see my Father doing. Or he said, John 15, what I learned from the Father, I'm now making known to you. So Jesus bore witness to the Father. His friends, as we see here in John, bore witness to Jesus and tried to explain what it all meant and tried to explain its significance. And again, Jesus had said that this would happen in John 15. He said, and you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. Now, do you hear both fellowship and experiential knowledge in that? You have been with me. And because you've been with me, then you testify. You, you talk about what this was like. And I, it's just fascinating to me that if you think of the, the cynicism, the hopelessness, the suspicion that exists towards religious knowledge for sure and lots of other kinds of knowledge as well, ethical, virtuous, moral knowledge, you just think of all the cynicism that revolves around can we really know anything? Can we really understand what's right? You know, sort of direct contrast to all that, the people around John and the first followers of Jesus, the people around them cherished them. They cherished the firsthand knowledge that those people had of Jesus. Isn't it remarkable? We're like 180 degrees out from that today. But the people around John, would have they, they loved him. They, they loved to hear him tell these stories of Jesus and because it, it let them in on this fellowship. So, so John's a witness because he has the authority of experience and he has the authority of being commissioned from Jesus to go tell and make disciples and extend this close, this close followership or fellowship to share it with the next generation. I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. He has John saying, we saw it and we heard it and we're now telling you so you can experience fellowship with God along with us. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this fellowship too. And so then he gets a little bit explanatory here, if you look at your passage again, where he says, and this is the message we heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And then now he's unpacking some of what this followership or fellowship means. When he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So when you see the word walking here, whether it's in light or dark, it means to point at something like the habits of our heart, our general way of being in life. So if you think of the habits of our heart and its outflow into a general way or general manner of life. And so John says there's a couple things here. First, you could, you could have a general manner of life in darkness, which of course just means like an unseeing life, a life that lacks understanding of reality that then leads to a kind of lostness or disobedience or opposition to or separation from God. So Paul's thinking something like this when he says in Romans 13, put aside the deeds of darkness. Or in the next chapter in 1 John 2, John says, anyone who hates someone walks around in the darkness. Can you feel that? 
that word for walking means a, a kind of living, a walking around in darkness. And then, of course, they don't know where they're going for the darkness has blinded them. Or, he says, you can walk in the light. And light means something like the character of God. Sometimes it can mean salvation. It can mean, of course, breaking the power of darkness, the, the way that a, life, uh, a light can reorient a life. You know, I, I spend way, 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 I have spent way too many nights in my life in uh, hotel rooms. Even just this week in Seattle, it's two different hotel rooms. And if you've done a lot of that, like I have, you can know how hard it can be sometimes to find the bathroom in the middle of the night in a strange place. So I've gotten in the habit of somehow leaving some little orienting light on so that when I get up in the middle of the night, it's not that it's bright out, but the tiniest little light can orient you, right? So just think of orientation. Think, think of stumbling around in abject darkness, and then it could just be a candlelight that doesn't light the whole room, not like we have in all this natural light here today, but it can orient you. If you just put the candlelight over where the door to the bathroom is, then you have an orientation in which one can then walk in the light. And this is what John is getting at. But sometimes, as the passage goes on, we all know that we miss the mark in this sort of with God life. We, we miss the mark of, of good fellowship with God through, you know, kind of spoiling fellowship by inattention or by sin. And what John wants us to know is that when that happens, the light also has a, another positive aspect to it, and that is that the light reveals our true state. And that in that sense, the light is our friend because the light helps us make sure that we don't lose consciousness of sin. Now, of course, anybody who's determined to walk in the dark won't find that to be true. They want to hide their deeds from the light. But anybody who's intent on following Jesus and being in fellowship with him actually finds the light to be their friend. And so then John says, once that happens, if we confess our sins, that is to say, if we come into agreement with God about the truth and nature of ourselves, the truth and nature of what he's calling us to, if we confess that, then he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all those sins. So confession then is just simply not hiding in the darkness. But having seen reality through the light, again, we, we just come into agreement with God about the ways our, our lives are currently missing the mark, the ways that our lives are currently misaligned or malaligned to what he's doing on the earth. Now, I'm sure you all have a similar experience to this. My personal one is one of the elements of, sorry, I mean to say that I'm sure you've all grown to love certain elements of our uh, liturgy. And for me, um, language that is never very far from my heart is the, the last part of confession. Remember where we say, have mercy on us and forgive us. And then I, I was helped and encouraged the first time I heard these words and I am helped and encouraged every time I hear them. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will. My commandments are not burdensome. Anybody who loves me keeps my commandments. So I learn to delight in your will. So even when that challenges my intuitive senses of sexuality or my intuitive economic senses or the various bits of darkness that I walk around with, that when I can see them, when the light reveals them to me, and I'm reminded that I can honestly align myself with the reality of those broken bits, because I know that I do it under the rubric of the love of God, who, as I see that light and determine to walk in the light, he will forgive me of my sins. That allows a very different thing to happen in me. 
where I'm not fighting against myself to do something I really don't want to do. Are you feeling me here? That's a very different thing than delighting in God's will. So have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. And you're just right back here to John. Again, the Greek term there for walk means your essential sort of manner of life. You're bent towards life, the way you operate in life. May I begin to do that in your ways and to the glory of your name. And so then finally, John says very specifically, I write this to you so that you won't sin. And there's a lot to be said here, but we can't do it. So just think of it as uh, that you won't sin as a habitual state of being. But if anyone does sin, let's say occasionally, then I want you to know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, again, there is just tons of theology there that maybe just for the sake of our discipleship, we might say something like that John wants us to know the joy of a stain removal project, that a product that actually works. Can you picture that joy? Anybody here have a piece of furniture you love? I have, ch- I have dining room chairs that I, uh, I redid the chairs myself and recovered them. And, uh, and Debbie often loves to have all their, well, they're not our grandkids. We teach them, like, teach them like grandkids. But like at Easter, we had like 13 kids sitting around the table, like dying Easter eggs and decorating cookies, you know, with uh, icing and, um, you know, sprinkles and stuff. So I'm like covering the chairs, right, with beach towels. And then we're done and I'm cleaning up and I look and there's a dang big old stain of something. And I go get this bottle of stuff, you know, that somebody sold me door to door and I spray it on and dang, it works, right? <laughs> Am I the only one that knows that feeling? You know, I'm, like I, I admit I'm a neat freak, but like when those stains disappear, I'm just like, yeah, you know, the world's good, right? The, <laughs> That the stain is gone. Something like that is the joy that John uh, has in mind here as we return to fellowship and as we, ex- we experience the wiping away of sins through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and begin to walk towards the light. That John just knows we'll find reconciliation and renewed friendship, we'll be forgiven, made clean. The sort of stubborn bents in us, the ugly stains in us will be removed We'll be given a fresh start and a new beginning. So maybe we can uh, finish this morning by saying that I think the picture before us that's important for our discipleship is that fellowship with God is facilitated by walking in the light. And that as we walk in the light, a couple of things happen. We see ever more clearly the truth of God and the truth of ourselves, and it allows us then to turn to God with ever more conformity. And again, I just want to say to you something I've said before, but it's so important to me that I... I want to repeat it, and you will have to study this more on your own if you want. But I just want to commend to you over the last few years my practice of Ignatian examine. Uh, you, know, you can just go Google that, and you can find out all you want to find about it. But I've just developed a habit over the last few years, normally at night. You can do this any time during the day. But normally at night, it, it, examine just means to kind of review your day uh, with thankfulness. At least that's the way I've learned to do it. And it just simply means to exercise discernment about what's real in us and the people and event of our lives. So examine means to just set aside some time during the day, I would say preferably at night when you're done with your day, 
to give yourself prayerfully and thoughtfully, reflectively to the people and events of your day in order to detect God's presence in our lives, to discern his movements and work in us, his direction for us so that we have the possibility of increased obedience as his cooperative friends. As you, have, you live into that, increased union and fellowship and increased Christ-likeness. And I, I just don't know of anything better than giving yourself to that sort of consciousness as a way to walk in the light. It's literally just a way of taking your life, the people, the events of your life, sort of putting them out there before God and saying, God, I want to walk in the light with you in this, and I want to be drawn ever more to your light, ever more to fellowship with you, um, that my personal piety would never be for myself alone, but always for the good of the people and events in my life tomorrow. As I find amendment for my life at night, reviewing my day in thankfulness, that gives me the best hope for a tomorrow in which I can be present to the people and events of my life in a very different way. Well, as we come to a moment of quiet now, as, as you've heard this passage this morning, as we thought about it a bit, what do you think about the present quality of your life? Like, are you aware of really walking in the light? And if so, you might want to thank God or to wonder about what's going right. Or if you find yourself walking in the dark, you might want to find some encouragement in these words of John this morning. That you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for any darkness you may be aware of, any stain on your conscience. And that if you'll just turn and walk towards what may only seem to be a little candlelight, if you'll turn and walk in that direction, you will find reconciliation and fellowship with God.